In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it's 9.32. And even by this point in the morning, since you awoke, you've probably made dozens of choices and decisions. And you're aware of some of them, and others you just kind of do. But every single one of them was motivated by something. There's something behind everything that we do. And sometimes you're aware of that, and sometimes you're not. You just do it. You have reasons. You have your reasons, whether you know about it or not. And what's true of the few hours between when you awoke and this moment, what's true of that is also true of even larger swaths of your life. That there are all sorts of choices that you have made in pivotal moments And in the moments that you think are entirely insubstantial and inconsequential. But for every one of those choices, there was something behind it. There was an idea. There was a voice. There was a premise. There was a set of experiences. There were relationships and how you interpreted all of that. And all of that, in some form or fashion, was behind the decisions that you made. And it is not an infrequent occurrence among we who are humans that sometimes we get really stuck in our lives. And at moments like that, we seek counsel from somebody, whether it's a friend or a professional or whatever that might be. And when we're stuck, you know what they do? They ask you why you do what you do at times. They ask you to consider what are those voices and ideas and premises And experiences that motivate everything you do. Because everything that you do is based upon an authority. There is authority in your life to which you submit and subscribe. And some of those authorities you're aware of. And many of those ones you are not. And the older I get, the more I realize there are all sorts of voices that are in the background of my head. That I was barely aware of until now. And what we all know, whether seen it in one another or in ourselves, is that what authority you give yourself to has a great deal of influence. And that if you give your authority to the wrong authority, you are asking for a life of loss. This morning, we're going to talk about authority. And there's all sorts of authorities in this world. Reason. Science, experience, tradition. But this morning, of course, we're listening to the Sermon on the Mount because we have for several weeks and we'll continue to listen for several weeks more because we believe that there might be something there for us. That we may think that there might be something good for us there. That's why we've called this whole series The Highest Good. But we want to consider authority, as Jesus puts it here, on the first week of Lent. The 40 days between now and Easter when we give our focused attention to what would lead Jesus to a place of great suffering and to do so willingly for those who acted against him as enemies. And so when we consider four verses from this sermon, we want to consider authority in three ways. Where authority lies what it looks like to trust in that authority, and what is key to living under that authority. 
Where does true authority lie? What are the marks of trust in that authority? But lastly, what is key to living under that authority? So if you're able, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. If you'd stand, if you can. Hear the words of Jesus. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the authoritative word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Anybody awake yet? Jesus wants to tell us something about where authority lies, but the way he does it is an indication that he kind of knows his audience in that moment. Because, you know, we've, we came out of the Beatitudes where he's discussing sort of the characteristics of one who has been awakened to the goodness of God and who would follow Jesus. And, and then last week we considered what it is our purpose as those who follow, and that is to be salt and light. And then all of a sudden he says, hey, do not think. And we're like, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know I was thinking that. And that's because Jesus knew who was listening and he knew what they were thinking. Because by this point, they've not heard Jesus quote anything They've, he's, they've just heard him say kind of what was on his mind. You know, he ascends the mountain, he sits down, and anytime you're a, in a Hebrew world and you see somebody going up on a mountain and sitting down, you, you think that they're saying, oh, this guy thinks he has authority, so he's going to lay it on us. But Jesus hasn't been quoting the law and the prophets yet. And so he's probably imagining that there are some people who are beginning to sit and this crowd that is gathering around him that are beginning to wonder, is this dude a maverick? Has he come to bring something of a revolution where he's going to discard, go out with the old and in with all new stuff? Is that his thing? And Jesus is thinking to himself, I know that's what you're thinking, but you're, you're wrong. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't quoted them yet. I've referenced themes from them, but no, that's not my gig I am not out to discard everything that is old and bring in a whole new set of principles and ideas. Instead, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, nothing passes away from the law. Full stop. That's it. Where does authority lie? Authority lies, Jesus would tell us, in the words and the stories that God has seen fit to give his people. That's where authority lies. Everybody has authority 
Everybody lives in a, under an authority. And we, we referenced that in the introduction. And there's all sorts of choices you got out there. And there's, you know, do we obey only our reason? Do we obey only what we can find in, in the scientific method? Do we only obey what we find by our own experience, our own traditions? Jesus is not discarding any of those categories. He's just saying, if you would order your life appropriately, then you must know that authority lies in the words that God has seen fit to give his people. Now, none of that should be a surprise to you, but we have to say it. We have to say it especially because about what we're going to hear in the next several weeks when Jesus starts laying down commands that everybody's going to get pinched by what he has to say. And that includes everybody in this room, including the dude standing here. If we don't think authority lies there, then we will chafe. And we will push back. And we will come up with ways to rationalize or justify not believing it. He would say the authority lies in, in the stories and words that God has given. And the question that we all ask is, why are those words authoritative? Why do the words and stories that try to account for the origin of all things, that, that tries to account for the brokenness that we find both within ourselves and in structures and in every human culture, why is it that we find our story being shaped by the story that says even when the wheels fell off on the story, God begins his own renewal project by using the very broken people that have pretty much come to him and say, I think we've got this under control. And God says, no, you don't. Why do those words have authority? Well, one of them is one we probably don't like to hear because we certainly didn't like to hear our mother say it when she could come up with no other reason for us to obey her. She would say, you will do that because I said so, right? It's all those proud moments in parenting when all a parent can do is just sort of assert their authority like a bully. It's because I said so, right? Like, I've never said that, right? No, of course I never have. Look, the Lord is the only one that can say, because I said so. And, and you know, the, thing, I, the first time I ever heard somebody tell that to me when I was in college and I'm a new believer, I thought, that's, that's not right. Because I said so, he can just say that. And it wasn't so much I had a problem with the authority of anything I find in Scripture. It's that I had a problem with God. Because if you have a problem with the idea that God could just say to us, because I said so, your problem is not with his words. Your problem was with the idea of God. Because if God is God, you know what? <laughs> if, if everything owes its existence to um, him in some form or fashion, then, you know, he has a little credibility. He has a little authority. He can say that. Because I said so. And he does. That's one reason why these words we consider authoritative. And yet... If we'll step back a little bit and not just simply assume that God is just sort of throwing his weight around to say, hey, I'm in charge. Listen to me. Consider the alternative if we would discard the idea that there is anything beyond our own idea of, of what is right and wrong and just and unjust. I read this quote from, from Cornell West this morning. He's a, he's a professor at Princeton. He's a Christian. And he said this in the context of trying to understand uh, human laws in the context of anything higher than that. And Cornel West said this, without law, the weak, the vulnerable, the despised would be defenseless against the powerful. We need law. Human law is good, but human law can go bad. And that means we have to recognize that there is a higher law, a natural law, a law of God that is the reference point, the standard by which we judge the justice or injustice of the human law. 
We may chafe against the idea, maybe inwardly, maybe not outwardly. You know, we're in church. We don't ever want to say that we willingly transgress what we find in Scripture. But there has to be a part of us that says, imagine what would happen if we discarded it out of hand. G.K. Chesterton said, when you get rid of the big laws, you don't get anarchy. You just get a thousand million little small laws. Everybody begins to be a policeman and an enforcer of their own frame of reference. And do we not find that at work even in our morning paper? The reason these words are authoritative is because God said so, and apart from it, we're in trouble. But in the same reason, these words are authoritative because in those words, there is life. And by that, I mean this. If you will follow the storyline of what we find in the text that Jesus would have us do, you know what it tells you? It says that you have dignity and worth irrespective of wherever you come from, whatever you look like, or whatever you have done or not done. You have worth because you're made in his image and no one can take that from you. That story tells us that. It tells us we have dignity. It tells us we have worth. But it also tells us about who this God is. That he is one who is with us. That he is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That he's near to us. And that it can be rightly compared to a shepherd who longs to see us live under him and to take refuge in him. In him is life. Because that same storyline that tells us that we are made in his image and that we are near to him and that we owe all our existence to him. He is the same God who says, even though you think you can wash your hands of me, I will not wash my hands of you. I will show you kindness you do not deserve. And when you believe that, that's life. Let me, let me just ask you a little rhetorical question. Can you, can you imagine how many ways just this week, how many moments would be different if you really believed in the moment that you or anybody else around you had dignity because they were made in the image of God? Can you imagine how your heart, your soul, your mouth, your actions would have changed this week if you really believed that you had nothing good in this life apart from kindness and grace. What Jesus is saying about the words of the Lord and the stories having authority is less about talking about the the prescriptions of God and the prohibitions of God and the commandments, even though that's certainly part of it. He's talking about the storyline of God, who God is and who we are unto him. Those words have authority because they're life. They're life for us. They're life for those who give themselves to it as an authority. Now, Jesus is answering an objection here in the first part of the passage. And that objection is, we think you might not really believe that God's word is God's word. And he's saying, actually, I do. You have no idea. Boy, am I going to show you. But their objection is not always our objection. We bring objections to the table. Our problem is not that we think Jesus isn't being serious enough. Our problem, more often than not, is that we think Jesus is a little too serious. I want to show you a clip from a movie that came out a few years ago. It's based, uh, it's based on a Jane Austen novel from early in her writing career. And it's a movie called Love and Friendship. 
And it's about a, a woman who has recently lost her husband, and she's now um, seeking to find um, an estate and, uh, and uh, a means of income. And so she and her daughter uh, travel to a, a near cousin's um, estate. And, and while she's there, she's trying to find a husband for her daughter and uh, also for herself. And, and when they arrive, uh, shortly thereafter, this guy shows up named Sir James. All right. And Sir James has the... Um, the unfortunate uh, characteristic of being both wealthy and of being a doofus. Um, he actually makes the film. Like, I, I just switch through all of the scenes and just go to the parts where he's in it. Because this guy is hilarious. But in this scene, Sir James is there to sort of prove his moral virtue. His prowess. And he is going to appeal to the Bible to explain where his virtue is centered. But, oh, you just got to listen. Perhaps the most significant in forming one's principles is that of the old prophet who came down from the mount with tablets bearing the 12 commandments, which our Lord has taught us to obey without fail. 12 commandments? Mm. Excuse me, but uh, <clears throat> I believe there were only ten. Really? <laughs> only ten must be obeyed. Excellent. <laughs> well, then, which, which two to take off? <laughs> Perhaps the one about the Sabbath. I prefer to hunt. Well... After that, it becomes tricky. Many of the thou shalt nots don't murder... Uh, don't covet thy neighbor's house or wife. You, one simply wouldn't do anyway <laughs> because they are wrong. <laughs> I have never recovered from that scene. Uh, clearly the man is um, ignorant of some things and clearly the man is unformed by what he so uh, glowingly speaks of what he is in submission to. And um, if we're not really, uh, if we weren't clear on the matter, he, he would just assume, you know, uh, take them all out, right? Um, uh, oh, which two to take off, really? And, you know, he would just prefer to do all sorts of other things. And look, um, it's funny. And I could watch that scene over and over again and laugh every single time with just as much gusto. But in some ways, he reflects the way we come to Scripture without a seriousness without much understanding of what it is, and, and certainly not formed by it. I mean, maybe we're aware of it. Um, we kind of just sort of say, well, of course they're wrong, but we really don't know why, and we probably would quibble with any answers given as to why it's wrong. And so it's a, it's a wonderful scene in and of itself, and yet it, it leads us to the second question. Not only where does the authority lie that Jesus is arguing for, but what does it mean to be marked by one who lives under its authority? And as I've alluded to, what, what marks you as one who lives under that authority is a certain resolve, a certain seriousness to it. A celebration, to be sure, and praise, and, and don't worry, we'll get to that in a moment. But, but to understand what it means to live under that authority is to come to it with a certain sobriety and seriousness. And you hear that really clearly in what you heard in verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
That word there for relaxes is the same word that Jesus will use elsewhere for untying. When he says on, uh, on um, Palm Sunday, hey, go, uh, go to that colt and untie it, loosen it. He, Jesus is using that same Greek word to the idea of sort of uh, untying yourself from some things that you find in the text for whatever reasons that you might do. Jesus is speaking in a way with great sobriety, in a way that he's probably, he's not really allowing much wiggle room. Oh, which two to take off? Wrong question. Because if, if the authority lies in the words and the stories that God has seen fit to give, and if in those words there is life, um, then the only proper response is a certain measure of resolve and sobriety. So Ezra, in the Old Testament, when he, when he sits with the law, uh, you hear him say in Ezra 7.10, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It's the only way you can come to it. It's the only way you can really respond to it is to, to take it with great sobriety and severity. And therefore, we have to remember that when Jesus says, he's talking about the kingdom here, that if you relax any of them, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Let's all remember what the kingdom is. The kingdom is, is God's presence and his participation um, his purposes finally coming with power into the world, and it's coming all through Jesus. And he would say, therefore, that our presence, our participation in the kingdom is bound up tightly with our grappling with the words that he's given to us. Where the kingdom is, there it must go. And it goes in word and in deed. And therefore, one does not simply hear the word. One must heed it. And then hold it out. One must understand it in such a way that they might even be able to call on or be called upon to explain it. About 30 years ago, um, there was a guy named Neil Postman. He's sort of a, an, an analyst of culture. And he wrote a, a famous book. It's a short book. I recommend it to you. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he kind of makes this observation that between George Orwell and Aldous Huxley, you know, George Orwell, 1984, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, George Orwell was worried that culture was moving in a direction that it would end up banning books. And Aldous Huxley cast an idea that, no, the problem is not that we would ban books, it's that we become so captivated by trivia that we wouldn't even read them. And... Neil Postman kind of falls down on the side of Huxley going, you know what? Who cares about ideas and thoughts? We're just going to, we're just going to let our minds be captivated by all sorts of things that will really never commit ourselves to anything. And so in that book, um, amusing ourselves to death, Neil Postman uh, comes up with this um, really sobering acronym. He says in an earlier day, when you didn't get a bunch of news, because, you know, you're in your small town. There was no internet. The phone was barely working. You got Pony Express. So whatever news you got was pretty limited. And when you got that news, in the context that you received it, you were more likely to act upon it, to respond to it. So this, he calls this called the information action ratio. The less information you got, the more likely you would respond to some of it because it's all you got. But guess what? Brave New World, you and I are getting bombarded with information all day. And so here comes Neil Postman to say this. You and I are now falling prey to this thing called the low information action ratio. The acronym is L-I-A-R, liar. You and I receive so much and do so little with it. We are 
captured by so much information and yet attentive to so little. Jesus is here to remind us that one mark of being living under the authority of the stories and the words that God has seen fit to give is to come to it with resolve with a certain breadth of everything that he said. And by breadth, I mean everything that he said. There is no relaxing what we might want to relax because we don't think it fits our cultural sensibilities as much as it might chafe us to read some of those words, to be sure. You may remember back in the fall when we were studying the book of James. Uh, James says this in James 2, 10 through 11. He says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. To have resolve and seriousness is to consider the whole breadth of what he said. It's a seamless garment. You can't cherry pick. And believe me, friends, every segment of Christendom cherry picks. There are some things that we give great emphasis to and other things we pretend it wasn't even in the text. And that is true of every segment. Conservative, liberal, moderate, progressive, whatever. Jesus is saying, you got to hear it all. you got to take it all in. And it's ironic that James brings up murder and adultery because guess what? In the next few weeks, Jesus is going to bring up murder and adultery. So here's your little public service announcement. In two weeks, we'll be talking about adultery and intimacy. And so parents, viewer discretion is advised. No, nothing to see. But nevertheless, consider yourself fully informed of that. There's a breadth that we have to grapple with. And if we don't, we don't respect the fullness of what the breadth of his text is also. But we also have to consider the depth of it. The most sobering words that Jesus says in this passage are what he says in verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you can imagine the scene in which Jesus says those words, if you're a scribe or Pharisee on tap, your eyes just got really wide. And if you're not a scribe or a Pharisee, a shiver just went down your back. Why? Because you didn't get to become a scribe or a Pharisee unless you knew the text really well and had demonstrated fidelity to it really well and could explain it and teach it really well. And Jesus is saying, most scribes and Pharisees still don't get it. And so if you're not a scribe or a Pharisee, you're thinking, if they don't get it, what hope do I have? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What, what is Jesus getting at there? Jesus is saying in that moment that there is a kind of devotion to what you find in the text, a kind of obedience that you find in the text that, that brings a certain mentality, kind of like what kids in high school say, um, is this really going to be on the test? Like they're not only not interested in the knowledge itself, they're just trying to figure out how do I get through by the skin of my teeth? What do I got to do to get an A? This mentality where you just kind of want to get God off your back. And Jesus would say that that's a dangerous way of thinking of what authoritative words that God has seen fit to give. It's a kind of dangerous sort of form of devotion that you see really vividly demonstrated in that 
famous parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the two sons. You know it as the parable of the prodigal son, but you know it as the parable of, uh, you know it as that story where a younger brother thinks that he knows best and he tells dad, I want my inheritance, I want my share, I, I, I know my own way. Uh, I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to follow my bliss. Thanks, I'm out. And he goes. And then it all falls apart after he lives a pretty um, full and wanton season for a while. And, he, and it says he comes to his senses and he heads back home. And the father's looking out on the horizon and he runs to him and he hugs his neck. And he says, before the kid can kind of give his sort of um, walk of shame speech, the father says, we're going to throw a party because he's home. Right? And then they get there and then the older son shows and he hears the bedlam. And he's like, what's up? And he goes, your brother's home. And rather than this older son breathing a sigh of relief to know that his brother's not dead, and rather than this older son giving thanks to God that his brother has finally come to his senses, he practically spits over his right shoulder in disgust. And he says to his father, I did everything you commanded me to do, and you didn't give me so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And Jesus tells that parable to those Pharisees and scribes and Jews sitting around him at that moment in order to make this point. That is possible. It is really possible for you to live by the commands of God, but not out of love for God. And that is a form of obedience, perhaps most insidious. Because you have deceived yourself into thinking that you get it. When all you really have done is acting in such a way to get God off your back. The psalmist says, without equivocation, in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. It's a rejoicing in the word. It's a celebrating its goodness, even when that goodness starts to push against your idea of goodness. And therefore, to celebrate its depth, to have great resolve in its depth is to understand that we must take it in its spirit, and surely we're going to have to take it by its original spirit in what we hear even next week about anger in our words. That anger is not just about anger, it's about something deeper and something to be very sobered by. And that, that then gets us to this last question. If, if the authority that we're to, to lean into, to submit to, is the authority of those words and stories that God has seen fit to give his people. And that living under that authority is marked by a real seriousness regarding the breadth of everything he said and the depth of what it means. What's the key to it? Before I answer that question, I get to address the elephant in the room of every room in which somebody might say that God's word has authority. And the way I want to set that up is to show you another clip from a very different and much harder film that deals with some really difficult adult themes that I would encourage you to do a little reading up on if you haven't seen it before, before you give yourself to it. It came out several years ago, and it won two big Academy Awards, and it's called The Cider House Rules. And it takes place in an early uh, 20th century a rural area, and there's a young man that's training um, in an orphanage um, in a medical practice, but during the summers, he helps pick apples with these uh, servants who are day laborers. And, and one of those day laborers has committed an offense that would make your heart sink. 
But there in the cider house where they live every night, there's a set of rules that the owner of that cider house has put for all to obey. And here you will hear one of those day laborers speak in a certain way about those rules that are affixed to the wall of that place where they sleep every night. Have a listen. Who live in this cider house? Grinding up those apples, pressing that cider, cleaning up all this mess. We just plain live here, just breathing in that vinegar. Well, someone who don't live here made those rules. These rules ain't for us. We the ones supposed to make our own rules. And we do. Every single day. Ain't that right, Homer? That's right. Well, why don't you burn them rules in the stove? Go ahead, Homer, do it. comes to authority, there is part of us that says, I think I'm going to be okay and I can make my own rules. And then somebody comes along and says, actually, there are some rules to which we have to subscribe whether we want to or not, because they define reality and they come from one who has a certain authority over all things. And in that moment, that day laborer is saying, whoever gave us these rules, he doesn't know us. He doesn't know what we face. He doesn't know what's like here. Get rid of them. We'll just make our own. We're good. That's straight out of Eden. Friends, there comes a point in everybody's pilgrimage in Jesus where you're going to read what's in here and go, oh, look, another genealogy. Awesome. Or, wow, it says that? Or, wait, I, I don't get it. And how does that square with what is coming from all sorts of places that feels like a more credible authority? And you will stumble and you will grapple with that and you will wrestle. And that is why I would say to you first and foremost that the key to living under authority is to look to the one who held it forth and lived in obedience to everything that it said to the utmost degree And held it out for us that we might know it's good even though there are parts of us and plenty of days in which we would not want to subscribe to its goodness. The key to living under its authority is to look to the one who lived it out to the fullest degree. Because as he said in the very beginning of the passage, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And that none of it would pass away until everything is accomplished. And what Jesus means by that, in him fulfilling it, 
is that so much that was anticipated for a later day, Jesus is saying, I'm your huckleberry. I'm the guy that's coming to realize what had been anticipated. But he's also here to say, I'm the one who will show you the fullness of what obedience looks like. Obedience is like a flower that begins to blossom in people. And Jesus is going to show you what the obedience looks, looks like in full flower. And by doing so, by being entirely obedient to the will of his father and showing it in full flower, he will do something on our behalf. He will cover all of our disobedience by his obedience. That's the good news. We will hear in Romans 7, why is it that I do what I do not want to do? Why is it that I do the very thing that I hate? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You look at the cross and it confirms two things. Just how serious Jesus is about the word that he's come to share, but just how serious we are at being unable to do it. And by him dying and by him rising, you know what he does? He compels us by his love to walk in his way, but not that we would be paralyzed in fear about trying to gain his approval. And somehow when we hear that, whatever despair that we might have, when we come to hear what he has to say and we think there is so far, there's such a far distance between what he asks and what I am. Jesus says, I know you're frail. You are but dust. Hold my hand. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. key to living under its authority is holding the hand of Jesus as we consider what he has to say and knowing that when we fail, he will not fail us. What does it look like then for us to walk in his way? God says to Ezekiel, take this word and eat it. And we must eat like Ezekiel then. And Jacob he wrestles with God and you're going to wrestle when you read the scripture. You, you just will. I do. You have to eat like Ezekiel. You have to wrestle like Jacob. You have to learn to pray like Paul who allowed the words to fill his mind until all he could do was speak unto God about them. You eat like Ezekiel. You wrestle like Jacob. You pray like Paul. And then you walk like Jesus. Knowing well that in his word, there is love. And for that word, we must listen. And for that love, we must listen. That's what it means to live under him. That's what it means to live under his authority. May it be unto us as he has said. Let's pray. Father, what must we hear from you about today? What voices have we given authority to that may have seemed rather credible for a very long time and may have served us in many ways, yet is at odds with what you've said? And, oh, surely, Father, you have not meant for us to discard all other voices, but to hear you, to hear what you have said of us and to us and for us, to hear that is the very foundation of all else that we listen to. And so I ask for your mercy and your enduring patience with us as we learn to allow other voices to maybe take a back seat to yours at times. 
and to know that there is a goodness and mercy that shall follow us all the days of our life. Help us to see Jesus and his goodness. And when we wrestle with what we find, uh, to know that he is worth our trust. In his name we pray, amen.